Welcome back everyone to the fourth episode of the Immunology and Beyond podcast. Today, we're super excited to welcome Dr. David Bekshinian as he tells us about his experience during his PhD in Dr. Sheila Singh's lab at McMaster University. From there, David went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship in Empirica Therapeutics, which was a company started by Dr. Sheila Singh's team here at McMaster and now pursuing medicine and is currently in his first year of medical school at the University of Toronto. We are super excited to have him. And so with that, we would like to welcome Dr. David Bakshinian. So for the first question, what I wanted to do was kind of give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little better before we jump into the e-degree details of your about your life and your professional career. And I think to do that, it would be good to kind of start from the beginning. You know, start as far back as you want. It can also be all the way back to high school and just provide us with that kind of trajectory that you took to get into, into science and what was that eureka moment if you had any. So maybe I'll start back from uh, early 2000s when I first immigrated to Canada, came in and uh, um, grade 10. I enrolled in the secondary school. It was Needenbrook Secondary School in North York, Toronto. And out of there, that's where I really started to get to know Canadian culture, Canadian society and whatnot. It was a real cultural shock coming from Russia to Canada, where people and societies are completely different. So it was quite an adjustment period. After high school, I uh, was fortunate to get a scholarship to York University, where I completed four years Bachelor of Biochemistry. Um, and then after undergraduate, there was a very challenging time for me to decide whether to pursue a graduate degree or go into and join a workforce and just start start my life as a working person. And luckily, I was given an opportunity to join Dr. Sheila Singh's lab out of McMaster University. Uh, so that was already 2013. And uh, I joined as a master's student. And I was given a project to work on pediatric medulloblastoma, a very aggressive pediatric brain tumor, which I was very excited to become part of that research. After a year, and four months, I believe, I applied to uh, transfer into my PhD, which I was successfully granted the permission to. And I started my PhD in um, early 2016 and continued on until I graduated with a doctorate degree in uh, April 2019, after which I switched my career path a little bit and I joined Empirica Therapeutics, a startup out of McMaster University, also out of Dr. Sheila Singh's lab. And, and then I worked there as a postdoctoral fellow for about a year and we were acquired by an American company, Century Therapeutics which were very excited and thrilled about the research happening at McMaster. So they decided to open a Canadian Century Therapeutics Canada. And I worked there as a scientist for three months until I was uh, accepted into a medical degree program out of University of Toronto. Just starting my medical career this month. Yeah, that sounds like quite the journey. I think it would be really helpful if we could dive a little deeper in kind of your PhD and I guess like your research experience that you had in Dr. Sheila Singh's lab. And specifically, if you can Tell us a little more about why you decided to focus in pediatric uh, medulloblastoma and kind of what led you down that path and, and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I think I was always interested in cancer biology because unfortunately, uh, both my grandparents passed away from cancer. So being a young teenager and seeing the effects of this devastating disease and lack of therapeutic options, and I never really understood the complexity of this treatment until uh, really I started to read more and get exposed to it 
it in my undergraduate biochemistry classes with Dr. Benchimol, um, who was a researcher at York University back then, um, where I really started to understand the molecular complexities of cancer and really understanding that cancer is a very simplistic term for a collection of the diseases that uh, afflict so many people worldwide and in Canada as well. So I really wanted to do something in oncology for my graduate degree and was drawn into pediatrics because I think that stakes are much higher when you're working with pediatric population. Their room for error is absolutely minimal because the treatments that we have for pediatric brain tumor patients right now, they consist of chemotherapy and radiation, both of which have uh, extremely negative consequences for their developmental neurocognitive development. And uh, so there's a lot of work to be done there. And that challenge really drew me into trying to make a difference and try to make an impact in that area. Thank you, David, for sharing that with us. It is very clear just by listening to you talk that you're very dedicated to this uh, area of research. And I guess for now, I would like to hear more about the science behind it and kind of what you did during your thesis. What were the questions that you were trying to answer when you were working in Dr. Sheila Singh's lab? Mm. So maybe I'll give a little bit of background on state of research that was joining uh, Dr. Sheila Singh's lab, and then I'll go into how my project was supposed or was aimed to uh, advance the field a little bit. So in early 2010-2012, there was a lot of effort to really classify a molecular profile of medulloblastoma. And what was historically known as a singular disease, termed medulloblastoma, it turned out to be consisted of four distinct molecular subtypes. So once they done a large-scale gene sequencing uh, studies on a large number of patient samples, they saw that medulloblastoma can be really classified into WINT, Sonic Hedgehog 3, and Group 4 cohorts or subtypes. And what they noticed, not only they were different on the molecular basis, but they also had different uh, different clinical prognosis associated with each subtype. So for example, WINT uh, had the best prognosis, uh, whereas Group 3 and Group 4 had the worst clinical outcomes. So a lot of research was now starting to focus on why what's what's driving this discrepancy. So when I came in, my project was focused on understanding Group 3 medulloblastoma, but not just primary medulloblastoma, because the most detrimental event in medulloblastoma pathogenesis is recurrence. The recurrent medulloblastoma is almost 100%, has a 100% mortality rate. So we really wanted to understand, well, what's the difference between primary group 3 versus a recurrent group 3 medulloblastoma? But unfortunately, even to this date, we have very uh, limited access to the recurrent samples because after the patient comes back after surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and if the tumor comes back, at that point, the doctors are more focused on quality of life and palliative care rather than trying to be aggressive and let's go re-biopsy this tumor, let's go retreat it. So not a lot of centers and not a lot of neurosurgeons have access to those uh, recurrent samples. So that's where my project tried to uh, fit in. We tried to create in vivo models, so in vivo mouse models, to really mimic the progression from primary to recurrent medulloblastoma. And what we started to do is just inject or engraft primary medulloblastoma cells into immunocompromised mice. We would then try to mimic the treatments that are adapted from the clinic. So we would give them radiation, we would give them chemotherapy, and then after some time, we would start observing that the mice even the treated mice would start coming back with their recurrent tumors, at which point we would collect the tumors back. And then now we have this access to invaluable resource in the form of recurrent medulloblastoma that we can profile as it goes through therapy and really understand what are some of the molecular vulnerabilities that we can exploit for potential therapies. It does seem like you've really filled in a huge gap in knowledge within the scientific community where now they can actually explore what seems like the most uh, detrimental aspect of medulloblastoma. I was wondering if you can talk more 
more about developing that model. You know, I, it doesn't seem like it was something easy to do. And if you had any advice for anyone that's thinking about doing something similarly within their field. I think the success of building this model came from not my finest quality of being stubborn and extremely, extremely stubborn. Because at the beginning, since nobody has attempted to adapt chemotherapy and radiation into mouse, we had uh, a lot of uh, work done in early on to optimize the dosing. And my first few experiments, first maybe seven or eight experiments have failed miserably. I got in trouble with um, ethics board because um, I was killing so many mice at the very high rate, which I'm not happy about or proud of. Uh, but ultimately with uh, trial and error, we were able to narrow down the dosing and um, start getting some positive results. But this was probably a labor of a year, I would say a year. And it wasn't just me, it was the whole team within SingLab that was very committed to developing this model. And some of the early preliminary work was done prior to me joining the lab, just for the purposes of generating preliminary data for the grant. So when I joined, we were fortunate to have a CIHR grant funding this work, and um, which was very important early on, just to know that we have that resource or that su financial support from CIHR to pursue this uh, project. But yeah, overall, it took over a year to develop this model. And um, after that, we started to adapting the similar model to the adult glioblastoma projects that we have in the lab. It was challenging, but very rewarding. The development of this model alone is an amazing contribution to the scientific community from what you're sharing with us. And now I guess the question is, have you learned anything new about how to treat medulloblastoma from having this model that you've developed? Or has anyone in the field used your model to learn something new? Yeah, absolutely. And um, even to this date, it's, and the model has helped generate such a breadth of new valuable data that we're still mining it and still uncovering some new uh, features of a recurrent medulloblastoma. And uh, we have a manuscript that went for submission at Nature Cancer. We got under review, and uh, now we're very close to submitting the re revised version. So hopefully we'll have some positive news to share with the world shortly. But not only we've done some RNA sequencing, we also looked at the proteome profiling of the cells as well, just because we want to see, can we target it not just with small molecules, but with the developments of immunotherapies? Can we find a cell surface target that we can uh, go after with an immunotherapeutic modality? And um, not just for my projects, uh, it has been beneficial, but several other master students and PhD students were able to uh, take this model and now advance it even further and get more information and more explore other avenues to target this devastating disease. So it seems incredible the amount of knowledge that's going to be able to be produced from this model that you developed, not only for your lab and uh, McMaster as a university, but also just the field of medulloblastoma. And I guess you've, t I feel like you've touched upon a lot, but I'm, I'm just giving you the opportunity to, if you haven't yet, discuss the future of medulloblastoma and where you see it going now that you have this model within the field. Yeah, absolutely. I think even just from the beginning, just from an, our understanding, our advanced understanding of the molecular profiles and how different subtypes associate differently with different clinical features, such as poor prognosis or some patients like wind medulloblastoma, patients with wind medulloblastoma, they do much better than, let's say, group three medulloblastomas. Just having that knowledge allows us to really tailor the therapies for smaller patient groups. So for example, perhaps the couple of clinical trials ongoing now are trying to de-escalate the chemotherapy and radiation that are used to treat wind uh, patients. And that 
hopefully will minimize the negative sequelae that uh, this cytotoxic therapy has on the developing brain. Whereas on the group three side of things, the more aggressive subtype, what we're trying to do now is really appreciate the complexity of that disease. And um, I think we're getting pretty, uh, very apprehensive about hoping for one drug wonder. And we're really appreciating the need for combinatorial uh, therapies. So not only are we looking for new targets, but we're also looking for synergy and potential combinations of drugs we can test. And that goes beyond just small molecule inhibitors. And now we're expanding our arsenal with um, CAR T therapies. There were some successful studies in vitro and in vivo studies from um, Dr. Michael Taylor, who published a work with a tri-specific CAR T cell uh, for medulloblastoma, which is kind of setting the stage for new advancements in the treatment of this disease. I think we're very interested in hearing about your experience that you had in Empirica Therapeutics and kind of working on, on the industry side of research. But before we do so, I'm actually going to pass it over to Dom, who's going to dive a little deeper into your experience as a PhD student. Yeah, so in terms of going through this experience and doing the research that you did, so we just kind of want to know, why did you start off as a master's and why did you transfer into your PhD? So how was that transition period for you? I think right before I joined graduate program at McMaster, I tried to reach out to a few of my upper year colleagues who went down this academic route and uh, they started to pursue graduate degrees. And I really wanted to understand what goes into how do you pick a lab? How do you choose a PI? How do you choose a project? Is it um, based on luck or how often do you get opportunities to switch your projects? And what was advised is don't commit to a PhD right away because you do want to have some time to uh, establish yourself, see if that's something you want to pursue. And because PhD is a four to five to sometimes six year commitment. One thing I didn't want to do is commit six years of my life to something that I will not be uh, happy about or fond of or passionate about, most importantly. So I really wanted to give it a try at first, and I joined master's program um, at McMaster. But after seeing the rewards that come with research and the rewarding experience that comes from a successful project, I was hooked and had no hesitation on uh, transferring to PhD at that point. But it was definitely not a direct decision. I did not know that I will go into PhD as I was joining my master's. But as soon as I started getting a hang of the project, getting a hang of the techniques needed to make me successful and realizing that maybe I do have the skills to succeed, that's when I decided to transfer and continue on. Yeah, that's actually really important. Actually, just making sure that you take the time to figure out if this is something that you enjoy and a lab that you enjoy. So what are some of the advantages of that transfer, starting off as a master's and then transferring into your PhD? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest advantage is that you are familiar with the lab already. You're familiar with all the techniques. So you don't need to go through another year of training. So your first year of master's doesn't really count as a master's. I would not consider that my master's. I would consider that as part of my PhD. It just at the time it was called, I was pursuing my master's. But that year was really my buffer year where I started learning about the lab, really started to um, interact and got to enjoy spending time with my colleagues. Um, I really appreciated the mentorship that Dr. Sheila Singh provided to all the students and was very fortunate to have that her guiding me through this journey as well. But what was important is that you pick up the skills as you go on your journey through academia. And those skills, they're very transferable. So you don't necessarily think that, uh, oh, why would I waste a year or master's if I'm going to end up doing a PhD? But to give that yourself a peace of mind that, okay, I will do my best. I will give this a best shot I can. But if it doesn't work out, then it's only a year and I've learned something. But it's you still have that flexibility to see if it's not for you, then you did not commit for six years. 
I also wanted to know in your PhD, what were some of the most difficult moments? Because I know pursuing a PhD is not for the faint of heart. It's not something that really easy to do. So I just wanted to know, in your opinion, what were some of the hardest moments of your studies, if there were any? Yeah. And um, I think every single graduate student pursuing a PhD or any graduate degree goes through an emotional roller coaster in a way where you go from the highest of the highs, where you are the only person that knows something, which is addicting. That feeling is really, really addicting because as you do research, you get yourself to a point where if your experiment works and you know that you're the only person to have this result in front of you, that's such a eureka moment in a way. So you really come home, you're like, this was a great day. I'm going to publish a paper. So you type up your manuscript, you submit it. And then you face the harsh peer review process. And that can really be challenging for a lot of students just because, for example, one of my papers, we submitted that manuscript to 11 different journals before it found its home in Oncogene. And during those times, you really start to doubt yourself in a way, just because you don't get that external validation from your peers. You start like, well, is the work that I'm doing is really that impactful or did I make up a story in my mind to make myself feel better? So it's very challenging to persevere and to keep going and to have constant belief in your work. And I think that comes with more and more experience where the longer you are in this in this field, the more you understand the rigor it takes to publish a scientific paper. So you stop taking things. Personally, it's not a, the reviewers don't, they don't want to hurt you, your feelings, but they do want to ensure that the best work is published out there and available for the world to see. So dealing with failures is very challenging and something that I had to continue continuously um, learn and modify my approach as I go. And I found that distracting myself uh, with extracurriculars, with sports, spending time with friends really helped me stay on, uh, stay focused and just not take the failures personally, or not even failures, just those setbacks personally. Those were some of my best moments, just the social interaction, the support, the camaraderie that you get with fellow grad students, not only within the SCCRI, the Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute, but also within McMaster, within other departments. And because every grad students going through the same journey. So we understand each other on a different level, I would say. Say grad school is like the quickest way that you get to learn about yourself and encounter your difficulties and your problems. So what would you say was some of the most important things or let's say weaknesses you learned about yourself and how did you overcome them during this journey? I think when I joined the graduate program, I was very naive in thinking that all it takes to succeed in science is to be hardworking and just do you experiments with the best possible controls, just keep working hard, generate a lot of data, and then that will amount to a manuscript that we will publish. But what I didn't realize is sometimes you get tunnel vision when you focus on one project or you're exploring one area, you just convince yourself that this is the best approach, this is why, and it's it's a challenge, and I think a skill that takes that every grad student develops or should develop to stay objective and subjective about your research, just to be able to criticize your own work. I think that was something that I had to learn even as I was going, just because I wanted to be able to put myself in the position of the reviewer and criticize my own work to see what will make it more acceptable for publication. And it really helped me in the my uh, last few years during my PhD, but definitely I did not have that skill at the beginning. Another thing is just li- really knowing yourself and taking care of yourself mentally, I think is very important that I also was not um, as apprehensive as I should have been at the beginning, just because um, in the undergraduate uh, degree, it was different because you had structured classes, you just needed to complete assignments, try to get best grades, and there was structure 
when you join a graduate program, there is the structure goes away and the structure becomes something that you have to keep on top of by yourself. So the discipline also needs to be picked up right away to succeed in this field. Yeah, so I would say discipline, self-criticism, and taking care of my mental health were the three key takeaways I learned from uh, my graduate degree besides the uh, scientific skills. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of grad students at different levels can relate to in terms of learning over time that you need to take it back and actually listen to yourself, listen to how you're feeling and make sure you're taking care of yourself. But also, like you mentioned, not being super naive, going into different things and being subjective on your work. So with that being said, I wanted to know some of the most important factors that you should consider before you actually start a PhD. So you went from undergrad and you had some experience in your master's, but for somebody who's probably at their master's and want to transfer into a PhD, what would you think or what would you say that are some important factors to consider? I would say before you commit or even consider doing a PhD, just really need to answer the question why you want to do that. Why do you want to spend your days and evenings and sometimes nights researching something that you might not be passionate about? And that will be very hard for you to continue to find motivation to keep going back to the lab, to keep trying different experiments because experiments never work on the first or rarely work on the first try. So you really need to have this intrinsic drive. And I think that drive comes from the answer why you want to do that. And for me, the why was always part was my curiosity, part was my desire to make a difference. And I think scientific contribution is really something that will outlive myself and hopefully even in 50 70, 80, 90 years, people might be looking at the small publication. Yeah, so for me, it was very important to make sure that I understood that I'm committed, what makes me committed to this uh, journey, and how will I continue motivating myself to stay true to this uh, decision. Yeah, I think those are some really important yeah, internal or intrinsic factors. Um, also, in terms of like extrinsic factors, so what would you give advice to people in terms of choosing the lab or the PI, and et cetera? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it's important to do your due diligence and really research the PIs or investigators who are in the field that you're interested in. Um, understand what sets them apart. Have, are they early on in their career? Are they early investigators or are they have they been established and are on the tail end of their career? Don't be afraid to reach out to them and ask to speak about their lab because a lot of investigators, they will always make time to speak about their work with potential students. And it's something that is very important early on and will help you make a decision or make you make a right decision when choosing the lab, just because you also get a glimpse um, into how is the PI when it comes to interaction. Perhaps a PI that does not respond to the request, maybe that's not the lab that you might be uh, want to keep exploring. Or if you go into the lab and you see something that might not, uh, might be off-putting, then that can also be something that a deterrent in a way. Or it can be a positive thing and you go in, you love the lab environment, you get to meet some of the students, chat with them, ask questions. Oh, I, if I was to go back before making the decision, I would also reach out to the PhDs in the lab just to reach out to them, send them an email, ask for their opinion, see what they like, what they don't like, why they chose that lab, and really seek advice from as many parties as you can prior to making a decision. 
Yeah, so that's like good advice in terms of going in and having a feel for the lab before you actually commit to the lab. And it's just kind of a trend that you've been mentioning just before you decide to do something, take the time to look at it, understand it before you're making your commitment. So Mm -hmm. I guess with this last question on this uh, section, what were the most fondest moments? What were your best moments in your PhD? My fondest moment was when, and this will sound very strange, But when one of my treated mice showed signs of brain tumors after two weeks of being tumor free, it was the most euphoric feeling of my PhD by far. Just because knowing something that succeeded after a year of failures was absolutely indescribable. But even besides science, the connections I made with people all over um, McMaster or even attending conferences and um, really getting involved in extracurriculars was fantastic. Yeah, I can only imagine in terms of your research, I can only really imagine after working on this model for a whole year, going through all of these problems with ethics and failed experiment after experiment, and then seeing it work, I can only imagine that it must have been really exciting. So with that, um, I think we're going to transfer into industry-based questions. Okay, so thank you, David, for your insight on the work you did during your PhD. I think that your PhD is really a testament in how important it is to establish the translational models to be actually able to then test potential therapeutics. Would you be able to comment on just, uh, first of all, Empirica Therapeutics as a company, kind of give a little bit of background about how this company really started. We know it is a startup that stemmed from the work at Dr. Sheila Singh's lab, and as well comment on your role that you undertook while um, you were working there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Empirica Therapeutics started, I think it was started in 2018, and it was um, stemmed out of collaboration with, between Dr. Sheila Singh uh, and Dr. Jason Moffat out of University of Toronto. And the goal of the project that they were undertaking as a scientific collaboration or academic collaboration at that time was to see whether we can target adult glioblastoma with uh, cd 3 directed CAR T-cells or chimeric antigen receptor uh, T-cells. And after seeing the success in both in vitro and in vivo preclinical models, they really started to think um, that there is a therapeutic or commercialization potential of this project. And uh, they started to explore the opportunities to spin out a company. With the help of uh, McMaster Industry Liaison Office, they were able to set up Empirica Therapeutics. And the transition from academia into industry was a very stark one beyond my expectations, to be honest. I didn't realize how focused their approach is to drive and this development of this new therapeutic modality into the clinic and all the difficulties that come with it. So not only we had to test this CD103 directed CAR T cells in our preclinical models, but we also had to start uh, working on the aspects that will help us get the clinical uh, clearance and just get the clinical approval uh, from Health Canada to use this treatment modality on the patients. So the work was very focused on on one product, how can we make the CD103 CAR-T better and how can we get this to the clinic ASAP? And it was a stark contrast with uh, the work that I was doing in academia where I had a lot of freedom in terms of exploring different projects and I had different avenues to pursue, whereas in industry was, let's get this CAR-T into the clinic now. And so what were some of the considerations you took before deciding to continue on with working at Empirica as opposed to looking at other postdoctoral research positions in other academic labs. What was the main reason that you decided to continue that route? 
That's a great question. And the decision to join industry at that particular point after my PhD was mainly driven with the thought of getting complementary expertise that will help me to continue on to translate research findings into the clinical setting. And because I already felt that I have a background in basic science, I can run the in vivo and in vitro preclinical models, but I really had no exposure to what it takes to get a therapeutic modality into the clinic. So I really wanted to get exposure to that side of things and really understand the behind the scenes, what are some considerations, what makes a good therapy go into the clinic versus something that has no potential of reaching patients. Because ultimately, my goal from the PhD was to help contribute, make new treatments and translate some of the research findings that we've done. So I thought that perhaps the best way to do is to get a complementary skill set in the industrial setting. And would you be able to comment on have the company able to reach phase one clinical trial? So before acquisition by Century Therapeutics, we had a meeting with Health Canada where we got very positive results and we were working towards the phase one trials, but we weren't um, there just yet. It's going to be very exciting to see how that progress continues now that um, Peric has been acquired. And so would you say that throughout your PhD, you were able to actually get those skills necessary to be in industry? Or is there any advice you would give to PhD students that are looking to do maybe a postdoc? also in industry, whether it be acquisition of not just lab skills, but other certain soft skills that may be critical to that type of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think doing an industrial postdoc really does have benefits of both worlds. Not only you continue to do the academic work where you do hands-on work with uh, and conduct research, but you also get to interact with business personnel or business developers and um, industry leaders where you get exposure to understanding the different mindsets that are involved in translating a therapeutic into the clinic. So it's not enough to have a great scientific idea. It's also you need to know and understand what it takes to get it to the clinic. And I think meeting different people with different perspectives was the highlight of my tenure as a postdoctoral fellow with Empirica, just because it was instrumental and, and eye-opening in my idea of what it takes to get into the clinical trial. But if I was to give an advice to a PhD student considering an industrial PhD, I would say really also consider whether you see your career as a basic scientist or basic academic research, or are you more uh, thrilled with a translational research? Because if you are going to stay with basic science, there's probably limited benefits of joining industry. But if you do see yourself as somebody translating or hopefully opening companies on your own and in the future, then getting exposure early on will be extremely important. Okay, well, thank you for your insight. We know that you're pursuing medical studies, but do you think you would ever consider again establishing collaborations within industry later on in your career. Yeah, and that's exactly where I want to go with my career trajectory, just because I think I positioned myself in a triangle in a way where one corner is my academic background, second corner is the industrial uh, exposure that I had with Empirica and Century, and then now I'm completing this triangle with my medical education. And I'm hoping that the combination of those three perspectives put me in a position to make the most impact in terms of not only understanding the disease from a clinical perspective and how it affects patients, but also understand the disease on the molecular uh, level, but also be able to translate those findings into the clinic with the industrial expertise that I have in the industry that will work together to get me into position to make the most difference. You mentioned your career trajectory and kind of kind of merge the triangle together of the different perspectives. So starting off in grad school, did you always see yourself merging these three worlds together or was it something that developed over time? It's definitely something that has developed uh, as the time went by. 
by. And as I learned more and more about myself and the project and the um, skills that I've been picking up. And to be honest, graduate school was not my first career choice coming out of undergraduate degree. I really wanted to be uh, working on a submarine coming out of university. But unfortunately, I was uh, fortunately for uh, all intents and purposes, I was rejected from that. Um, so I settled with pursuing um, cancer stem cell research with Dr. Singh. I never really imagined myself in this position right now. I knew that I wanted to do science and um, medical school. That was the initial plan. And I did apply for MD-PhD program at McMaster and I got to an interview, but unfortunately wasn't selected for the program. But in a way, it was a blessing in disguise. So obviously at, the, at that time, I was extremely disappointed not getting into McMaster Medical School. But that really gave me a few more years to build myself as a scientist, join Empirica Therapeutics, build myself within the industry, and then meet different mentors, which I think is very important um, as, as a journey through grad school. And then all those experiences uh, cumulatively helped me get into medical school eventually. So I think it all panned out fairly well. I do have one more question. I was wondering what role did Dr. Singh play in your decision to continue? Because I know that having her as a role model would have been perfect because she is a clinician as well as a researcher and then started her own company. And so would you be able to comment on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that the reason why I wanted to join McMaster Stem Cell Cancer Research Institute, specifically with Dr. Sheila Singh is not only she's a neurosurgeon scientist, but also she's a mother, a wife, and an amazing multitasker. I'm not sure how she does it, but I just wanted to really be mentored by somebody who is so capable of multitasking and can switch their um, thinking and their problem-solving skills on the fly. So one moment she's talking about a case she had on the clinical side of things, and next thing she's updating me on a new collaboration that we can pursue in a science, scientific area. So having that mentor early on really cemented my desire to continue on with uh, both academic and medical studies. And I might not become a neurosurgeon after all, but uh, definitely a clinician scientist. So just before we end things off, I know that you also have another extracurricular activities, specifically ones that are geared towards helping your fellow graduate peers to connect with one another. So I was wondering if you can expand a little more into that. Yeah. So during my PhD, I was fortunate to attend a few conferences, both local, international, and uh, within Ontario. And one of the conferences was um, OICR-sponsored Translational Research Conference uh, in Kingsbridge, Ontario. After I attended that conference, I was pleasantly surprised on the emphasis that was put on the trainees and early career uh, trainees in cancer research within Ontario centers. And that really prompted me to reach out to the president of OICR, Dr. Laszlo Radvani, with an unrealistic idea of setting up a Ontario-wide student-led data club where where students from different institutes, different labs can openly share their ideas and collaborate and foster collaboration across Ontario. And little did I know that this newly found idea will take shape as a Ontario Rising Stars in Cancer Research Network, which is now is in its inaugural year. What we're trying to do with this network now is to really build a platform for students not only to share and collaborate and promote discussion between different sites within Ontario in terms of cancer research, but 
also offer workshops, speaker seminars, mentorship programs, newsletter to really not only bring geographic equity to cancer research uh, resources, but also start a dialogue between the graduate students because we're all, all in this together. We all face the same challenges. We all can benefit from learning from one another and having this platform where you can meet fellow early career trainees, just even to discuss something trivial about what are you going to be doing next? What are your career options? Just to really foster that uh, discussion and open opportunities for the graduate students in cancer research in Ontario. Wow, that sounds like an amazing initiative. I know personally, a lot of the times students are very eager to collaborate with other students. So this definitely provides a platform for them to do so. So with that, I would like to ask you if anyone's interested, specifically our listeners to get in contact or be involved with this program, how would they do so? Yeah, we are on LinkedIn as Ontario Rising Stars and Cancer Research Network. You can also reach us on uh, Twitter um, and we do have a website. Perfect. This is the last question and this is the question that we like to ask all our guests. Looking back at your research experience, trying to see where you wanted to go and everything that you have gone through, which is incredible the amount of uh, success you've had during your research experience that you've accomplished. And I can't wait to see what you do later in medical career. What would be one advice that you would give yourself when you first started? This will sound extremely trivial, but I would say to myself, get ready to work hard and read a lot of papers. I think it's very, very important to stay on top of the literature. And one habit that I really picked up that I'm very happy that I did is to try to read one scientific paper outside of my field per day. And that's something that really opened up my not only scientific thinking, but also just opened up the knowledge of what's being done in other labs just outside of brain cancers or even outside of Ontario or my area of expertise. So get ready to work, work hard, lose some sleep, make sure you make a, a lot of friends. Um, don't be shy to a, approach anybody because realistically, everybody is a little bit shy until they're spoken to. And once you start talking to someone, that's when you not only get to know them, but you also get to know yourself. You start picking up on things that you might be surprised you had in you. Attend as many talks, as many conferences as you can. Just, but really, really get ready to work hard. On behalf of the Immunology and Beyond podcast, David, just wanted to thank you for being so open and giving such great advice for students that are thinking about going into research or students that are currently in research. I know that I found it incredibly helpful. Thank you. You are wonderful hosts and I'm definitely subscribing to this podcast. everyone. We'd like to thank David for taking out the time to do this interview with us and also sharing the challenges and the triumphs that he experienced through graduate school and providing us some insights on how he plans to combine academia, industry, and clinical work. And with that, we would like to say thank you for tuning in and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Immuno and Beyond and leave us any comments or reviews. Also, make sure to follow the McMaster Immunology Research Center on Twitter at Mac Immunology as we'll be sharing some additional information there. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.